This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. So I know there's a lot of buzz and interest around agroforestry and food forests these days, but do you really know what the difference is between an orchard and a food forest? Or how to choose the right species for your climate and soil conditions? How about companion plants in the various strata of a forest? And if you're looking to make money and sell products, how can you make a business plan and calculate expenses and profit from a system that could take years to mature? Luckily, my friend Jacob Evans and I will be covering all of that and more in our upcoming course on profitable syntropic agroforestry. In the beautiful setting of the Spanish coastal mountains, Jacob and I will take you through the practical learning experience of designing and planning all the way to putting plants in the ground for a profitable syntropic agroforestry enterprise. Early registration discounts are now open for this five-day course from April 13th through the 18th, and because of COVID precautions, spots are limited, so be sure to register right away. Just follow the link on the website or our link tree on Instagram for all of the details. Now, if, on the other hand, you already know what you want to plant and have a design ready to go, I can help you out there too. If your project is located anywhere in continental Europe, you can get the trees you're thinking of planting and a group of volunteers to help you out to get them in the ground absolutely free. I've connected with the team at Life Terra to help them reach their goal of growing 500 million trees all over Europe in the next couple of years. It's an ambitious goal and we need your help. Whether you're aiming for reforestation, planning an orchard business, adding perennial alleyways or hedges to your farm, or simply inspired to plant a food forest in your backyard, we can help make your project happen with free trees and planting support. So if you sign up through the link on the website, I'll also offer a free project consultation to make sure that you get started with a good plan and understand how the process works. Just fill out the information through the link and let's get planted. Hey everybody and welcome back. I've often wondered what in the world goes on in the thought process behind the planning and design of the newer towns that I've lived in. In the cases of really old places, the layout and the architecture always made more sense to me. Streets are laid out with orientations to sun patterns or for ease of access to important markets or buildings. And the homes reflect the integral relationship between extended family or workers, animals, and even the processing of household goods. And the simple natural materials with which much of it is built is integrated with art and gardens and water features, which also serve important cultural functions. And in contrast, while modern civic planning is very utilitarian, the utility appears to ignore many essential human factors for the ease of machinery and transport. In contrast to those older towns, I knew neighbors who would drive to get their mail at the end of the street because there were no walkways, and who spent countless hours maintaining lawns that their children rarely even walked on. There were few, if any, gathering spaces or community activity centers, unless you count shopping malls or gyms. And when you grow up in those environments, they seem pretty normal. But once I got to travel and see the contrast of places that were built before cars and concrete and steel, I began to wonder why we ever abandoned that style of building. I'm going to put in a disclaimer here that I'm going to stop short of romanticizing the past. I've learned enough about history that I don't envy the sanitary or living conditions of almost any previous century, nor do I want to gloss over the challenges that these old places are having in integrating with the modern world. There are many complex and contextual reasons why these places are both heralded for their picturesque tourist value, while the younger generations flee to find work and opportunities in the new developments. And yet, I wanted to gain some insight about why modern towns abandon some patterns that we know to be more conducive to connected living, and what can be done to retrofit and redesign the infrastructure that we have. 
And for this, I spoke with Charles Marone, professional engineer and land use planner with decades of experience. Marone is the author of both Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, and Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, Transportation for a Strong Town. He hosts the Strong Towns podcast and is a primary writer for Strong Towns web content, and he has presented Strong Towns concepts in hundreds of cities and towns across North America, and Planetizen named him one of the 10 most influential urbanists of all time. Now in this interview, we explore the transformation of urban planning over the last few decades, and Charles gives vivid examples from well-known studies of major cities around the United States of both the dire consequences of poor planning and the potential of better design. We also look into the simple steps that anyone can take to begin to reverse the disconnection of their community and begin to create connections and deeper relationships that can set their community on a new trajectory. So I'll hand things over now to Charles Marone. I'm really interested in how you got started in your interest in civil engineering and urban planning to begin with. <laughs> wow. I, it, it's, I wish I had like a glamorous tale. I mean, I was always as a kid interested in cities and how things worked, um, but I was going to be a musician. Like that's what I wanted to do. And quite frankly, I, I had this girlfriend that I really liked. She's now my wife. We dated all through high school and college and, at one point, I just decided, you know, I need to get serious about life. I'm good at math. Uh, engineering seemed like an, an interesting pursuit to me. And so I, I decided that I would not do music. I would do engineering. And I got my engineering degree. As a, as a young engineer, you have to work for, you know, a handful of years, four years under a, another engineer before you can get your license. And by the time I got my license, I figured out that I was not a very good engineer. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was good. I could do the things that you needed to do, but it like, it was um, the, the rote part of it was not really a good fit for me. And I had been doing a lot of planning work and I realized I, I wasn't a very good planner either. And I thought I could get better if I went and got a, a graduate degree. Fortunately, my wife is very patient with me and, and she was supportive of that shift so I went back to grad school for a couple of years, got a planning degree. And, and in that process, uh, just wound up starting my own planning firm. And so by the time I got out, I had hired a couple of my classmates and was working with cities all over Minnesota doing planning work. And I would say like light, you know, planning informed engineering work or engineering work that was, you know, planning that was engineering informed kind of uh this merging of left brain and right brain kind of stuff. I, I wish it was more glamorous than that. You know, I, I wish I was like brought up uh, with this great vision of the world, but really for me, it's been trying to answer questions along the way of, you know, how do I make my way in this world? And then wh why does this not work the way that it should kind of thing? And when did you start to notice that things weren't working as they should? When did you start to see mm. the world that we live in from a more critical standpoint? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a good question because there's always been flashes, right? Um, I remember as a little kid, I, I grew up on a farm in central Minnesota. And I remember as a little kid going to Disney World. And I had this very distinct memory of of like the parade about to start and we're all sitting there on the edge of the street. And, you know, and it's. It's this idealized, uh, you know, personification of a place. It's not a real place, but it's a, you know, it, it, for someone who 
you know, is not really a city person growing up, this was like this magical place, right? I mean, that's the whole way it's sold. It's the magic kingdom. And I remember watching the, the lights come up. Like there was a little uh, lever thing that, that brought the lights up. So the lights would shine on the parade. And I remember it caught my eye and I thought someone cares enough about this environment to hide those lights when it's not the right time and then to bring them out when it is. And it, it just occurred to me, like the attention to detail that that signifies that that creates was just, it was magical to me. And, you know, as I got older, I had a chance to travel in Italy. I had a chance to travel in, uh, in France and, and, and England, you know, the, the kind of tourist light places that Americans go. Uh, and, and, you know, it did expose me or open my eyes to the idea that there were other ways of assembling things and, and the logic of it, like the, the kind of chaotic random logic emergent became very uh, enticing to me and interesting to me, particularly because at, at the time, I was trying to figure out how to make the cities I was working with better places. I was trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, make things work here in an environment where, you know, nothing works very well. I mean, the U.S. is a is a really tough place to build cities because of kind of the underlying chassis in which we have built them on. And what is that underlying chassis that makes it hard to not only build better communities as you would like to, but also retrofit the ones that already exist. I think it's an oversimplification to say, you know, automobile mobility. But I, I think if you were going to try to like grasp it in a, in a short sense, it would be that. I, I think if you step back and, and look at it from a bigger picture, that 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 dichotomy between complexity and complicated between mechanical and organic is really the thing that we struggle with here in the US. Um, we place a really high value on mechanical processes. H how do we create something that functions kind of as a machine that can replicate itself over and over and over? Uh, the inspiration behind our current development pattern is really growth. Um, how do we create a model of development that allows our economy to grow very, very quickly. Uh, I'm, I'm a pro-growth person. Like I'm a capitalist. I think market systems are great. I like growth. I think we don't recognize how we have this like state-driven growth system that channels money and resources and effort and energy into a certain mechanistic style of building that becomes just this like overwhelming, irresistible force that we all live in here. If you look at like pre-Great Depression American cities, or if you go around the world and look at cities where they, they don't have the same mechanistic approach that we do, uh, there's a lot more of an, under, it, 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 an underpinning of an organic kind of system, a system that evolves and adapts and changes. A, a market, the way Darwin would describe a market, right, as, a, a, you know, as a, a, an adaptation change over time, uh, you know, feedback loops, driving incremental uh, change, things getting too far out of whack, getting kind of knocked back into place. Uh, 
th- th- that is the, the pattern that you see prior to what we at Strong Downs call the suburban experiment, the, the kind of post-Great Depression, post-World War II chassis that we build on here. And it's what you, you know, there's, there's, there's bits of that suburban experiment that creep in around the world, but the, the base underlying pattern that I see in, in pre-depression cities and, you know, global cities really is a little bit more organic in nature, a little bit more of that closer feedback loop in a sense. Yeah, so you, you can say that. the automobile, but I think it goes way beyond, right? Sure. I mean, I've heard from going all the way back to colonial architecture and how that's clashed with, you know, geological features and the things that are below that chassis, the things that could have been used to create easier flows of resources, energy and such, but, you know, it was chosen for other reasons. And that is a relatively new way of building. And I've definitely seen that contrast too, now that I'm based in Europe and grew up in Minnesota and have traveled quite a few other places. I've also noticed how it influences uh, the way communities interact and how they get together. How have you noticed that where you live and what critiques do you have about that? It's amazing because growing up on a farm uh, where, you know, we had, we, I grew up on the original Marone homestead. So it was 80 acres out, you know, it seemed like the middle of nowhere. Um, but around us were all these other farmers, all these other people who were in similar situations. I knew them. I knew their families. I knew what was going on in their lives. When one of them was sick, we knew it. When one of them had uh, a suffering in their family, we knew it. When they had uh, uh, kids or a wedding or some great joy, we, we knew it. When uh, we had the hay cut and we needed someone to help us get it in, they would come over and help. We would go over and, and help them. Uh, when a calf died or the rain was going to spoil the, the hay laying in the field, it, it became an emergency, not just for us, but for our neighbors and, and the people around us. As I, as I grew older, as I got married and I moved into what would be called like just a classic suburban kind of place, uh, I grew up, you know, there in, you know, became a, I was a young adult and, 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 you know, spent a, a deal of time there. My, um, my neighbors were people that I knew, but that I knew abstractly, right? Like I would, I, I would, I'm a friendly guy. They were friendly people. We would wave to each other when we drove by, um, you know, we would uh, acknowledge each other when we happened to catch each other's eye. But I, you know, I lived in a place for 15 years. I couldn't tell you anything about my neighbors. I couldn't tell you anything, you know, about them, even though in proximity, we were way closer to each other than I was growing up on the farm. We were, we were far closer together. I I remember one day it just dawning on me that my neighbor across the street uh, would literally like, as he was driving in, open up his garage door with the garage door opener, drive in. And then by the time he was getting out of his car, his garage door would be coming down. And it, it just occurred to me that like, we have no, we have no interaction at all. We have, we have zero relationship, even though we live 
within 50 feet of each other or 60 feet of each other. And, you know, if, if, if my house were to burn down, like he would be the guy I would need to go to for help. If, if I had something, you know, emergency, likewise, if he, there's just not that relationship. I, I live in town now. I live in the city. So we, we left the suburban and we came into the, the heart of the city and, you know, we have neighbors right, right there, like right outside our door, all over the place. And it's amazing because I think you could live in this environment and not embrace that, 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 that neighborhood aspect of it, but we've made some intention and it's really not hard because my neighbors are nice, kind people. Um, you know, we don't, we don't get along with all of them all the time. They can be annoying, but, but the reality is, is they are part of our lives whether we want them to be or not, because we do share a, a fence line, a front yard, uh, you know, the, 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 the sounds and the noises and the, uh, you know, the dogs barking and our dogs, friends and not friends. And, you know, we, we just share all these interactions and you can do that in a way that is really quite beautiful in, in an urban area that I did find growing up on a farm also happened out of necessity, but in this kind of middle, you know, location, this suburban context uh, never happened at all. Hmm. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but it doesn't happen naturally as a byproduct of being in that space. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it is completely in line with my experience growing up partially in the suburbs as well. What were the, intentions and the steps that you took to reverse what would otherwise be sort of a default setting of not having interactions with your neighbors? I, 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 so my family, I mean, I, I, I live in a small town. I grew up here. I've got family all over the place. I have this uncle that is like the personification of the, the grouchy old, you know, stay off my lawn kind of person. And I remember when, when we moved here in, in the town, I said, like, I don't want to be my Uncle Rob. <laughs> I don't want to be this crabby old man. And I, I, will, I will admit, you know, my, my wife and I, my wife grew up on a lake. In Minnesota here, there's a lot of lakes. Uh, she grew up on a lake. There's a certain amount of privacy you get with that. When we lived in the suburban area, uh, you know, there were advantages to it from a privacy standpoint uh, that that obviously when you live in town are not there. And my wife in particular, not to throw her under the bus, but was a little bit nervous about giving that up. You know, now we're going to have neighbors like literally the, the, the next house is 15 feet away from ours. I mean, we're very, very close. Um, so we just with intention, you know, the, the, the first day we closed on the house, I went and shook hands with all the neighbors and introduced myself, said, hi, uh, it's amazing how, just a little bit of smiling will go a long way. I found out very quickly that my one neighbor on the one side was like a really generous, uh, you know, man, he's, he's now passed away. He was a little bit elderly, but you know, in Minnesota, as you are aware, we get a lot of snow in the winter. Um, it is not just etiquette, but it's required that you clear your own sidewalks out in front of your house within 24 hours of the snow. I would get up. I'm not a night. Per, I'm not a morning person. I'm a night person. So I would get myself up at you know eight or nine in the morning and go out to uh, to take care of my civic duty, and uh, my neighbor had already done it for me, <laughs> you know, because he was just out. He was a generous, like nice guy. He's like, I'm out there. I got a snowblower. I'm just going to do it. 
And we wound up having this race over time to see who could clear the others, who, who could be the better neighbor, who could clear the other sidewalk more quickly. And that kind of attitude is infectious, right? Like once you start doing that and you take some joy and, you know, I beat Doug out to clear his sidewalk and I can kind of, you know, smile and laugh at him. Like, you, you know, you, you can't get me, man. I already got your sidewalk. Uh, all of a sudden, it's pretty easy to do the next neighbor's sidewalk and the next neighbor's sidewalk. And pretty soon, you know, we're all kind of enjoying each other's company a, a little bit more. And then, of course, I travel a lot for work. And so there's times when I'm not home. And you know what? It was really nice when Doug would clear my sidewalks when I wasn't home. I mean, I, I would go over and, and thank him specifically for doing that. Um, again, that those kind of little gestures and behaviors um, are just very human. They're just very kind, but they, they also tend to like feedback on themselves and grow. This is, this is that Darwinian feedback loop, right? Darwinian talks a lot about, um, Darwin does a, about altruism growing out of natural systems. And, and other people have studied this too, to a great degree, how survival of the fittest really is a, is a, is a, is a short truncated and, and kind of cruel version of something that actually when looked at in a natural sense is, is very beautiful because a, a lot of creatures that exist in nature, and I think we are humans existing in human habitat, uh, have a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of natural benefit from altruism, from working together, from helping each other, from being part of uh, an ecosystem or a community where there is uh, sharing. And I, I just, I feel very happy to be part of that. Absolutely. And not only is that the type of game in which everybody wins, regardless of, you know, who comes out on top in the individual <laughs> match, right? But yeah. it also seems, and I, I can think of a few of my own experiences, that people are kind of starved for those interactions. And if someone just takes that first step, you can often tap into kind of this held back desire or energy to give, to be generous, to contribute and to do things for a collective that, uh, you know, maybe just needed that little spark to get going. Yes. It, so I, I don't know what things um, I, it's, it's, it's obviously become something that has weighed on people over time and become a, a huge source of stress. If we transport ourselves back to the early days of the pandemic, which I, I would call like the scariest days, right? Because it, it, we didn't know what this was. We didn't know the extent of it. Uh, we knew that it could kill people. We knew that it transmitted seemingly quicker than, than other things we had experienced. Uh, Ebola being one that, you know, a, a, a comparison. Um, and so there was a lot of fear. And, and I think the natural human reaction to fear is, you know, to enclose oneself, to lock oneself in, to, to kind of hide yourself from this fear. And we saw that. We saw that in the, in the early days. But boy, it did not take much time at all, at all, for the, the beauty of living in a neighborhood with people to start to show itself. Um, all up and down my street, all throughout my neighborhood, you would see people who would get together. This was March and April, which in Minnesota is not always the warmest time. Sitting out in lawn chairs in the front yard, just, you know, 30 feet, 20 feet away from a neighbor, just having a talk across the space. 
uh, running into so many people where we were out walking and we would keep our distance from each other, but just wanted to have that, that interaction. And a lot of those interactions were, are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. I'm, I'm doing fine. How are things? And, you know, as, as nasty as sometimes this pandemic has become and here in the U S it's become deeply entwined with the, you know, the team red, the team blue, really partisan politics. As nasty as that has been, there have been some just beautiful human moments that a lot of us have reported experiencing. And I've experienced them in my neighborhood uh, where people wanting that human connection have been able to, to, to seek out ways to make it, to, to, to make it happen that I, I don't think living in the old place that I used to, I mean, we n- never talked to those people in good times. Why would we have chatted in, uh, in the pandemic uh, here? I, I feel like it was part of what got us through the, the worst times. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You, you see those pictures in Italy, right? Where the people were, I mean, I remember getting emotional about this because, you know, in Italy, they had like the deep lockdown, right? And you get the people who would come to the balcony and sing at night and they would sing together and there would be this thing. And, and I, I realized we could nostalgize that and maybe make it something bigger than it was. But I think it was an authentic expression of, of humans wanting to connect. Yeah, we had the exact same experience here. Um, we actually, my partner and I did not leave our apartment for three whole months. We didn't even go to the grocery store. We stocked up before. Wow. And, wow. and at eight o'clock every evening, we would go out onto the terrace and clap for the, for the first responders, the medical yes. responders. And that was one of the things that kind of brought our little mini neighborhood together. And the police would kind of do rounds and, you know, check on people there you know, I mean, those were kind of small things and a lot more has evolved since then, but uh, to experience it firsthand was a glimmer of hope within that very dark moment. And it's, yeah. that, it's that kind of stuff that really gets you through. It's, it's amazing because, you know, I, I was in the army and when you go and do difficult things, like that was one of the, you know, as a kid, particularly, that was one of the more difficult things I did. You, you are thrown into situations with people that you wouldn't normally maybe, you know, in a different situation, be friends with or, or, or be drawn to or attracted to, but because you go through this, you know, traumatic or this difficult experience together, I, I wouldn't call my experience in the military traumatic grading on a curve, but uh, you know, it, it was, for me, it was a, it was a, it was a trying time. It's difficult time. You feel like this lifelong bond to those people having experienced that. And I do right now, I'll say this for me, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but living in time with people in a neighborhood does give you a certain bond to them, but going through the pandemic with them, I mean, I, I, we had one neighbor turn over during the pandemics. So we have new people who moved in halfway in between and they've been great. It's been nice getting to know them, but the ones that were there at the beginning, I mean, I remember sharing one of them works at the hospital. I had a box of N95 masks and I brought them over and they were able to take them to the hospital. It, 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 it's, you know, that wasn't like a super heroic thing on my part, but they needed it at the hospital. She worked there. I knew her because she's my neighbor. And it was one of those things that like, I felt good. I think she felt good. And, and we, I, I, I'm feeling like I'm drawing, making this like way more nostalgic than it is, but I, it, it, it is powerful because we went through this together. I do feel a little bit more of a connection to these people. Um, 
and you know, and that's true when we go through Fourth of July celebrations and and you know Christmas time where everyone decorates their houses and and all the things we do in a year. Like I, I think because you do it together with people around you, it does kind of bind you to them in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there are countless examples of that from certainly the pandemic, but also before and after. And hopefully that's the type of moment that sticks with you in your life and inspires you to pass it on the next time. And I'd like to switch gears back again for a moment and focus on something that's quite the opposite. (laughs) Some of the the worst expressions of planning for, for, uh, well, for the infrastructure of cities and also the example that you give in your book, Strong Towns. Now, you have a chapter on understanding Detroit, which is a city that has yeah. become synonymous with urban decay and dereliction, right? My question is, what are some of the key takeaways from that example that you used to highlight in that book? So let me start by saying that I, I love Detroit. I, I really do. I, I um, you know, had this, had this perception of Detroit going into it as this place of ruin and abandonment and decline and decay. There certainly is that, like, I'm not going to pretend that that isn't there, but, but there's a, there's a, there's a layer of Detroit too. That is very beautiful. That is very human. Right. Um, I look at Detroit as uh, not some tragic anomaly, but really as the, you know, the manifestation of that growth machine that we talked about earlier, uh, you know, D- Detroit was the very first city to experiment with the, the automobile. They were the motor city. And if you go back to the, the pre-auto days in Detroit, Detroit was one of the most beautiful cities in the world. The, the, the pictures there are just stunning. And I've been in buildings like the Detroit Opera House that you know, if you dropped it into Milan and like spruced it up a little bit, would not feel at all out of out of you know out out of place. It, it's it's a it is a mind blowing built. Just the chandeliers themselves are are mind blowing. Let alone the the grandiosity of it. That was all in Detroit because Detroit was one of the world's great cities. Uh, when they started to experiment with the automobile, um, they were really the first place to develop the the North American development pattern, you know, what has become the North American development. They're the, they were the first city to say, you know, Henry Ford famously, I want all my employees to be able to afford my product. So I'm going to raise their wages and then finance this thing for them and get them into it. Uh, We can talk about the altruism or lack of with that. But, you know, the idea was uh, in Detroit, we would have this higher standard of living by allowing people to live outside on larger lots and larger homes. In the engineering profession, we say dilution is the solution to pollution. If you think about uh, the the problems of urban congestion and and people living very close to each other, it seemed in the 1920s and 1930s, a very simple solution to just spread people out. And the automobile was a great mechanism for that. And so Detroit like experimented with this. They were the first ones to run the highways through the middle of the city. They're the first ones to tear down neighborhoods to accommodate the commuters and a commuter lifestyle. They were the first ones to, uh, um, you know, really devote huge amount of resources to this horizontal expansion of their place. And you can see over time as Detroit has struggled. Uh, what it has more than anything else is lacked the capacity to respond. Um, one of the very uh, kind of mechanical, again, things of the suburban 
development model, the post-war development model, is that it generates a lot of cash very quickly for cities, but it does so in exchange for uh, enormous long-term liabilities. I, I think if you think of Detroit as a, as a case study, you take a city that is this beautiful, gorgeous, very strong place um, with not, not perfect, you know, lots of problems, lots of neighborhood tensions, what have you, but, but a place that is strong and stable, you spread it out over a huge area, denuding the tax base, driving up the costs. What happens over time is that financially uh, you become insolvent. You, you get the insolvency of Detroit. You have more stuff that you have to take care of with a less of a overall tax base. The ratio of tax base to obligation gets all out of whack. Um, in the early stages of that, the way it manifests is that you have a problem that you can't fix because you don't have the money, you don't have the resources, you don't have the, the relationships, the capital, the, 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 the systems to actually address that. And so Detroit's uh, you know, post-war history was one of tremendous boom and then tremendous decline. And as the decline started to set in, there was really no way to offset it uh, to the point where uh, you see them getting into all kinds of crazy like financial alchemy. You know, they, they, they got into the, uh, the, the modern banking equivalent of the mafia, you know, where the hedge funds would come in and loan them payday loans to make it to next week and to the week after that. Um, because their finances got, you know, they got in this like negative spiral. To me, the lesson of Detroit is, uh, is, is, is not one of Detroit being a unique place, but one of Detroit being like the early indicator, the canary in the coal mine in a sense of what the natural outcome is when you pursue this kind of growth strategy that America has, has, has pursued with its cities. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of other boom and bust urban areas from the industrial age as well. I yeah. was recently in Manchester, which was the first industrialized city in the world, especially due to the textile industry, and went through you know a long period of dereliction as that declined, and have since re. It, again, it's kind of like Detroit, like they haven't completely come out of that history. There's still a lot of degraded infrastructure that's hard to uh, retrofit and come back from, but they're starting to find a new identity as new industries come up that feed that center. I'm wondering, can do we, you see a similar we, pattern? No, uh -uh. I want to draw some distinctions because okay. I, I don't, okay, please. Because what you're talking about, I think, is is fundamentally different and it's different in like really important ways. Okay. If, if, if we go back to, let me let me give an example that I, I might be a step beyond what you're suggesting, but I think it will help. If we think of like the the Western boomtown, right? Oh, there's gold in them there hills, and like everybody shows up and they build the boomtown, and then it's you know it's it booms for a decade and then it's a ghost town, right? What do those places look like? Think of it in your mind, like what it looks like. There's a there's a main street with a saloon and a, you know, gunslingers out front. I don't know, but, but like we could picture what it looks like, right? It looks like an old frontier town and around that main street and a couple other blocks, there might be a, a patchwork of startup houses or what have you, but 
you know, there's nothing really beyond that. There's certainly no public infrastructure. There's no water towers and sewer systems and all that. It's a, it's a, like a, what it would be in a biological sense is like the very early proteins of a place starting to assemble. Right. And, and so that boomtown basically had no reason to mature to the next level of intensity. And when the, the reason for its boom went away, it went away. It, it, it was in a Darwinian sense, like a failed experiment, right? Like we, we here's a genetic offshoot. We're going to try this and like, it didn't work here. And so it goes away. And I, I, I think we should applaud that. We should be fine with that. Like that is something that uh, we don't uh, embrace today at all is this idea of something new starting and, and have it fail and go away and that be okay. When you look at those industrial towns, what you had was uh, largely places that, yes, had boomtown characteristics, but the actual development pattern that they used um, was in many ways this same organic incremental type of system. And the reason why that that's important is because those places start to generate their own heat. They start to generate their own reason for existing, for living. And so you can go through a period of time. And I think Detroit could have done this where they became like a, the boomtown manufacturing place and then manufacturing went away. But if we look at like Pittsburgh as a, as a, as a different analog, they didn't tear everything down. They didn't tear down their neighborhood. There's actually like a place still there. And it took them a while to figure out how do we adapt this? How do we make better use of this? How do we reestablish this? But the actual bones of a good place, the actual bones of a productive place were still there. And so you could, you could do that. You could accomplish that. You could overcome that. When we look at the boom towns that we build today, be it a new suburb or, you know, I would say parts of Silicon Valley or Austin, where we're seeing all kinds of growth now today. Um, I, I think a lot of that development pattern, if the boom reason goes away, even though we put enormous investment into sewer, water, roadways, sidewalks, uh, schools, you know, parks, all this stuff, there isn't enough there there to actually generate its own heat. It needs that outside you know, that, that, the, the thing that is making it boom, whether it's the agglomeration of high tech or it's a manufacturing place on a good waterway in the industrial age or whatever it was. And when that goes away, uh, I, I, I think that all of those places would share similar characteristics and that there would be a natural collapsing back to, uh, you know, a viable kind of, of, uh, of equilibrium which in a place like Austin or, you know, the suburban parts of Silicon Valley is going to be really ugly. Just the same way that it's, you know, ugly in that ghost town uh, in the American frontier, but different in a way that say like a Manchester or, a, you know, a place that would have, um, you know, its own heat in a sense, uh, augmenting and, and, and bridging that, that period of, of stress. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. That does clear that up. And I was actually leading right to where I was going next was, do you see these same patterns emerging with things like these tech bubbles or the effect of uh, the housing prices that they cause as well? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I see the, I see the danger part of it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Austin is a really interesting city. It's a really, um, oh man, you're from Minnesota. So, you know, when I say interesting, that is 
both a, a compliment and a detraction, right? That's our local, I, I, that's our local vernacular for, mm, is that's interesting. Yeah, it's like, it's yeah, a very I, loaded word. <laughs> it is a very loaded word um, because there's a lot of great stuff going on in Austin. Austin's a really fun place. Um, they've got parts of their downtown that are really great. Um, you know, they're making some like some good investments in, in, in biking and walking. They've got a, a, a good conversation going on in some places, but a lot of the good is overwhelmed by the, just the massive scale of the bad. The fact that they've stagnated every neighborhood artificially, they don't allow their neighborhoods to, to grow and expand. You basically have this binary situation in Austin where you can either have really intense density, like high towers and really intense urban stuff, or you can have vast amounts of horizontal expansion, single family lots and quarter acre and half acre lots, just infinitum with all the traffic congestion and everything else that comes with that. That is the system that, again, will grow very quickly. And you know, if they're gonna be the next Silicon Valley, they can attract uh, at, at, because they're more dynamic right now than a place like uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in terms of being able to accommodate people at different housing price points and that kind of thing. Uh, there are you know, some advantages that they have today, but everything that they're building is one generation. It's not designed to evolve. It's not designed to adapt. Uh, it's designed to provide in a very Boomtown-esque way uh, cheap housing, or uh, let's say affordable middle-class housing, because we've, we've changed those terms a little bit, you know, but housing for tech people and the related things that would need to happen to accommodate their lifestyle, it, it, you're able to do that at a fraction of the cost of what you can in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and so you can experience that, that boomtown thing for a, a period of time. Uh, how long can they keep that going? A decade, two decades, three decades? Like, I don't know. I, 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 I don't have a prediction, but my ultimate prediction would be when it ends, when the tech aspect of that ends or diffuses to other parts of the country, becomes less concentrated in a place, uh, Austin will see like one of the, they'll, they'll be the next Detroit, right? They'll experience that decline in the same way. And you know, Silicon Valley is, is very weird because you do have this, uh, you do have asked parts of it that are strong towns. You have parts of it that have the neighborhood bones and the neighborhood kind of living that generate its own heat. Um, but you have vast portions of it that don't. And I think that you will see a, eventually see a shakeout there too. Um, if, if there isn't a, a radical reform uh, from the bottom up of how they, how they build, just because, uh, you know, it, 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 I think the same dynamics are, are, are taking place just in proximity to something maybe a little bit better than what you have in Austin. Hmm. And where do you see hope in working with or transforming these built environments that so many of us live in, in order to promote things like resilience and connection that are antithetical to the infrastructure that is mostly built for efficiency, for larger distances, moving around in cars and these other things that we've highlighted? It's a, it's a, it's a good question because I, I have struggled to find hope. It it's taken many years for me to, to see it because uh, so much of what is, um, 
you know, going on today or what our, what our, what our national top-down impetus is, uh, is frustrating my hope, right? The, the way the federal government funds infrastructure, the way we set up our capital markets, it's all designed to respond to this very short-term exchange. Um, where I find hope uh, and where I've, I've kind of grown to really see it and appreciate it is in the, the, great, the, the very deep potential for bottom-up action. The idea that individuals in a community working together uh, can transform a block, can transform a handful of blocks, can transform a neighborhood uh, in a sense outside of and despite the things that are going on around them in a system. And in that way, it's really, really powerful that you know if we want to do something different, if we want to see our, our places be different than they are now. Uh, we don't have to wait for permission. We don't have to have a federal program. We don't have to have the, the right Wall Street you know, mix. We can actually start making it better today. Um, I, 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 there's, a, there's a friend of mine named John Anderson. He's an incremental developer. And he's, he made this statement and, and I love it because it's, it's really changed my thinking and guided the way I, I think about things. He, he's fond of saying to someone about their city, right? Uh, you don't have to make this into Paris. You just have to make it a slightly less crappy version of what you have today. Um, the amazing thing about making your place a slightly less crappy version than it is today is that you live there today. You can have joy in it today. You can experience like good out of any place you are. I've been in Detroit neighborhoods where, you know, the, the, the kind of marketing brochure of it would be very dire, but when you meet the people, they're filled with love and with joy and with hope and with, you know, all, all this like spirit of goodwill amongst each other and they're beautiful places to live. Um, if you take, where you're at today, and you can bring that spirit to it and that approach to it, uh, you can make it better working together with other people. You, you, you can make it a, a, a slightly less crappy version of what it is today. You know, by John, I, I would say, you know, you can make it incrementally the next level of mature, the next level of quality. And there will be a, an amazing beauty in that. There will be a lot of, there'll be a lot of, of positive uh, joy and happiness and, 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 you know, just, just greatness that comes out of doing that. And that is a step within all of our reach. And I know that sounds maybe a little idealistic, but you as a podcaster yourself have interviewed people from all over who are really shining examples of that initiative and imagination that it takes to make their communities better for, for everybody. And I'm wondering what are some of the stories that have stood out to you and inspired your own work? As you as you as you bring this up, there's a couple that come to mind right away. Um, there's a guy named Tommy Pacello who passed away. Young man, uh, pancreatic cancer took him way 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 too early. Um, he was the first one who brought me to Memphis, and the energy that is just flowing out through Memphis and, and Tommy kind of personified this. And, and in his absence, it's been amazing to see that people have stepped in and continued to, to roll with it. Um, Memphis is a really tough place. Memphis is a, is a place with a high level of gun violence, high degree of homicides, a place that has really struggled. But when you get into the neighborhoods of Memphis and you see people out with, 
spray paint, putting in bike lanes and, and straw bales and, uh, and cones and, and doing little pop-up things here and pop-up things there. Um, one of the things that Tommy would like to say is that in Memphis, um, social capital is just springs up like a, like an oil well, you know, you go to a place and you, 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 you put a, a pipe in the ground and oil just flies out of the air, explodes. You know, we've all seen that image. He says, that's what Memphis is like with social capital. So you just go out and you say, we're going to, we're going to start a brewery here. We need people to show up and 500 people show up and like, where did this come from? How did this happen? Uh, there's, there's deep social connections in Memphis that have been beautiful to watch them despite a government uh, that is getting better, but has been largely like dysfunctional and not serving them. Despite that, individuals actually creating things and having it, you know, be really responsive. And then having that response affect the way the local government changes and matures and, and actually improves and starts to focus on things that are better. I, I'm gonna also, you know, Santa Ana, California is another one of these places where uh, we've, we were, I was invited to come many, many times. We couldn't work it out. I finally was able to make it there. And when I was, I was ashamed that I hadn't been spending time there uh, ahead of this. Um, Santa Ana, California is just South of LA. It has a, a very high percentage of, of undocumented people, people who uh, are, are living in the U.S. but are not U.S. citizens and are not necessarily here uh, through all the legal channels. Um, it, if you go to Santa Ana, California, you will find a city that um, does not have, I, I want to say outside of the two federal buildings, does not have a building over five stories. Um, so you, you're not going to see skyscrapers, you're not going to see massive buildings, but has the fifth highest density of any municipality in the, in the U.S. What is going on there is astounding. You have people living, for me, I live in a single family home in a traditional urban neighborhood in a small town. My family in my single family home is my wife and I and our two daughters and our dog. That's our family in a single family home. When you go to Santa Ana, you will have a single family home and it will have, uh, you know, husband, wife, uh, two kids, dog, uh, cousin who's visiting, um, grandma who we're taking care of, aunt and uncle who are between jobs and are, you know, looking for work. Um, and, and, and when you immerse yourselves in these families, you know, and, and every variation on that theme, you know, a friend from up the street who's on hard times. And when you immerse yourselves in those families, what you find is that uh, a lot of, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Christian. I think a lot of what Christians, uh, you know, uh, nostalgize about family living, we don't necessarily live ourselves, the open door, inviting people in, helping those in need. Um, but in a place like Santa Ana, it just, it's just organic. It just happens in space. It's just everywhere. It's just part of like the underlying culture. And, when you can get out of your car and slow down and spend time in these neighborhoods, what you see is that that beauty in the home, that beauty in the in the place, spills out into the community in everything from uh, little bits of public art that they'll do to ways they'll go out and 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 you know fix up the street and plant things in the curbs and uh, grow little gardens in the front yard and and 
I, I think in Minnesota, with Minnesota eyes, it, it might appear at first glance to be a little bit messy and chaotic. But when you uh, slow yourself down to actually grasp it and appreciate it, it has such deep beauty and meaning. I, I can't help but be inspired by it. I love those two stories because they really connect with two concepts that I have been exploring and trying to figure out the essence of for a while. One that I help to work with clients to figure out when they come up to roadblocks in their designs for things like uh, restoration, ecological restoration, or permaculture properties that they're trying to develop. And more recently, uh, regenerating farms and talking about how they don't have enough money usually or other types of material capital in order to get things done. And that's a perfect example in both cases of how social capital can make up the difference where financial and material capital is lacking and just how not just positive, but powerful that it can be to get things done when you get people rowing in the same direction, even if there are other limitations. Is that one of the things yes. that you see really <laughs> opening up yes. possibilities where the top-down solutions, where trying to throw money at a problem often fails? Well, let me, let me get it to like what I think is the, is the transformative Please. thing, right? Because, you know, the, the, the old parable of stone soup uh, which has been told in, 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 in many, many different ways. In the Bible, there's the feeding of the 4,000, which, you know, as a Catholic is the divine thing, but as a, as a, if you read it from a secular standpoint, is stone soup being retold, right? Like Jesus takes a bread, hands it to people, and everybody eats, and everybody eats when they share what they have with everybody else. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an amazingly powerful story for us working in the trenches, trying to, to make places better. I think here's where the revolution happens and here's the, the shift that we need to get to. When you look at local government, local government post-World War II has been positioned in the hierarchy of governments as algae, right? It's the bottom of the food chain. Uh, money trickles down from Washington, D.C., from state capitals, from Wall Street, and local government has set itself up in this mechanistic way to receive that money and then put it to work creating growth in the economy. When local governments uh, orient themselves that way, they become very responsive to capital flows, very responsive to government, very responsive to, to Wall Street, not very responsive to their own citizens. When local government takes itself out of the role of algae in a system of governments and instead recognizes that it is the highest form of coordination and cooperation uh, for people living in a community, their orientation shifts instead of being vertical around capital flow to be horizontal around the urgent needs of people in the city. What we find is that the stone soup like magnifies a thousand times because local governments can do all kinds of things that in a vertical system seem very, very small, but in a horizontal system are game changing, right? In Memphis, you go out and you put spray paint down and you put in some, some bike lanes and you put in some crosswalks and you put up a mural and you put out some temporary planters and you try to make a street a little bit nicer. And then bam, what happens is uh, people start to move into that neighborhood. All of a sudden there's a new restaurant opens up. There's a couple of new shops. There's like things going on. The city can go out then and they have done this in Memphis. And this is why I use them as an example. It's beautiful. The city can go out and say, wow, that little temporary improvement had such a big impact. What would happen if we made that permanent? 
what would happen if instead of having that paint be paint that's going to wash away in four months, we put some real high quality 3M paint down? What what if we actually took this bike lane and and put some raised concrete in here and made it a, a separated bike lane with a permanent kind of structure? What happens if we take those trees and instead of having some planters, we actually plant some stuff in the ground and water it and nurture it and let it be a substantial thing? For, for, for the city of Memphis, you're talking about a $10,000 project. I mean, in the, in, the, in the scope of their budget and the money they throw away on, on really bad, like unhelpful projects, it's nothing. It's nothing. But for a neighborhood, it is utterly transformative. So the revolution really happens when local government wakes up and recognizes that in this game of stone soup or feeding the 4,000 or whatever that's going on at the neighborhood level, they are the game changer in making that, uh, you know, that uh, go to a level where it starts to create, again, its own heat. It starts to generate its own inertia. It starts to be its own place and its own thing then everything changes. To me, everything changes. Mm. And in the converse of that, what do you think are some of the biggest impediments to starting to get things to move in the right direction and make those small changes that lead to the snowball effect that start to transform places? Well, I, I, I think there's, there's two big ones that come to mind. I, I think the first one is, is obviously is us, right? Uh, you know, we, we have, um, you read Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, and uh, I, I, you know, he describes a, a population in isolation from each other. And I think that our default wiring as humans is in many ways to, 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 to live in isolation with each other. I think the greatness of the traditional development pattern is it would nudge us out of our stasis and in a sense, force us to interact with those around us. And once we do, it becomes easy. It becomes beautiful. It becomes this thing that you miss when it's not there. But, uh, you know, it's a little bit like the, the tree that falls in the forest. It's, you know, left alone. Does it really, does it really matter? Does it have an inertia? Does it have an effect? I think we have to challenge ourselves to engage, not just online. Online can be a beautiful supplement to meeting in person, but I think we have to challenge ourselves to, to, to take those steps and get to know our neighbors, get to know our places, humble ourselves to, to, to work with others and, and develop a shared vision. I think then the next thing that is really the impediment, and I, I don't know if it is the, you know, the, the federal government and, and, and the whole system of kind of top-down funding of, of, of all this stuff, whether it is the state as kind of the codependent uh, who facilitates all this stuff. But I think the place where we can have the most change is, is the local governments just being trapped in this system. When you go to city hall, uh, they will say, you know, we want to make streets safer for the people who live here. Uh, but we have to accommodate 30,000 cars a day. Um, why, why, why do you have to accommodate 30,000 cars a day? Well, because that's where the money's coming from and the people who are giving us the money are saying we have to do. Um, we want to have uh, organic growth within our neighborhoods. We want to allow tiny homes and we want to allow uh, accessory apartments and we want to allow single family homes to be converted into duplexes so we can have more people living in these places. But uh, yeah, we, you know, we, 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 we can't do it because, and there's this like long list of, of kind of top-down things they're responding to. I, I think that cities and local leaders 
need to recognize how much power and authority they have. And they have to be willing, and it takes a little, you know, we always talk about courage and leadership. I feel like the courage and leadership today is, is having the courage to say no to the seductive, like quick thing that walks in and having a, a more long-term bottom-up vision uh, for what prosperity and success is going to look like. And, and that's, that's really hard to do when you're in government. Hmm, for sure. Now, it just seems like we keep coming back to this impediment of the transportation infrastructure. And it's one of the things that has really caused the sprawl and the disconnect in the infrastructure of communities and putting up barriers, essentially, for people to be able to get to each other and interact on a more human scale. And of course, in your, your most recent book, in Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, you focus on the role of transportation and transport infrastructure and how it plays into the health and usability of community spaces. How has our transportation infrastructure been misused and where are some of the opportunities that you see to overhaul it? I, I think if we were to oversimplify, you would say, you know, we have, we have had a fetish for a long time with Automobility and mobility from a technical standpoint is the speed and volume of traffic that we move on our streets. Um, I have this exercise in the in the first chapter of the book where I go through and, and explain the design process that engineers use to build streets. And, and the way they start is with the speed that they're designing for and then the volume of traffic and everything kind of stems out of that speed and volume uh, equals mobility. And the theory there is the more mobile people can be in an automobile, the more places they can reach, uh, the more uh, employment opportunities they have, the more goods they can buy in a competitive price. And overall, the better off our economy will be. And I, I, I want to be generous and go back to the 1950s and recognize that I think to a degree that theory is true, but it's true to like a very limited degree because if it's very easy for me to get in my car and drive to, you know, a place where I can work, where I couldn't have gotten to before, or a place where I can buy something at a slightly more affordable price that does have like benefits for me today. But if it, the, the, the trade-off is I can't walk across the street to the grocery store that I used to go to, or I can't walk two blocks to the restaurant that I used to go to. Um, because it's a dangerous walk. It's I got to cross a five lane road. I've got to walk an extra four blocks that way to get a light to cross. I'm taking my life into my own hands. It, 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 it's, you know, it's not socially acceptable. There is a component of that, particularly in a small town where it's like, you know, I've, I can't tell you. I'm in, I'm just going to guess, I'm in the upper 5% of income earners in my rather poor little small town. I can't tell you how many times people pull over and say, do you need a ride when I'm walking? Uh, because like socially, the only people who walk are people who are destitute or, or need a ride. Um, so there's all these things that like make that, that two block walk or that four block walk just not operable now. Um, and it, it destroys that whole theory of mobility that somehow we'll be better off, that somehow we'll have more options, that somehow we'll, we'll have you know, a higher prosperity. If you go back to the end of World War II in the neighborhood that I live in today, there were 13 grocery stores. Now, they weren't big box grocery stores. They weren't you know, the supermarkets in a sense, 
they were, you know, there was a Norwegian butcher and there was a Finnish uh, pastry place. And there was, you know, you, you might have to go to a couple of places to get the stuff you want on a day, but there was lots of options within the neighborhood. There was, in a market standpoint, a lot of competition. My neighborhood 20 years ago had a big box grocery store. It is now gone. It's been a succession of dollar stores and different things. My community as a whole, instead of having dozens of grocery stores, now has one big box grocer. You can say, okay, the big box grocer has 20 different types of mustard. And I've seen that argument made by people like Randall O'Toole who say, well, now you can get 20 different forms of mustard. Well, great. But I have one store to shop at. And I will get whatever they have there, however they deliver it at whatever price they have. And that is not competition. That is not a market. That is not a market that's responding to me and my neighbors. That's a market that is responding to what, you know, the, the super value chain of grocery stores uh, has as their priorities. I think if we recognize that, it would open up, uh, uh, it, it, it would demonstrate to us how, we've long passed the point of diminishing returns with this development strategy. Yeah, and there's so much talk these days about biomimicry and looking to the natural world to redesign the, the human scale world and our own infrastructure. And I'm wondering how you know, this kind of consolidation of resources and options, whether it's you know, the stores like you talked about that you have access to, or even it's happening online, that that somehow is not seen as a similar reflection of the loss of biodiversity, the loss of, you know, resources and stuff in the natural world, also reflecting in, in how we live at the human scale. Do you find inspiration from nature when you look to reimagine how our own infrastructure can be improved or, I guess, redirected to serve us at a human level? It It's... You use the word inspiration, and I, I think I know what you mean by that, but I, I want to I drill down in that a little bit, because I, I think there's a lot of people who are in, there's a lot of people who worship nature. Like, like I'm in awe of nature, like I'm in awe of God. I, I worship nature. I worship God. Um, my relationship with nature is different, <laughs> and it's, it's more... Um, I am, and I think my relationship with God maybe is different too, in this sense that, that it's more of a humility in the face of such overwhelming force and power and, 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 and capacity beyond my ability to even fully grasp and understand. And I think when you look at nature that way, what you recognize is that a lot of what humans do is they fool themselves for a period of time. We can do this suburban experiment and we can uh, you know, impose our mechanistic approach on things and make it work really well for us. We can tame nature for a while. We, we, can, we can pretend that we exist outside of biologic natural systems um, for a while and, and, and we can go in that way. But what we see is that uh, the ecosystem starts to fail, right? Like the underlying processes start to go bad. And whether you measure that in terms of dollars and cents and we start to become in, insolvent uh, or whether you measure that in things like suicide rates going up and depression rates going up and rates of obesity going up, uh, there's all kinds of measurements today that, that tell us that this system is not working to have this biological creature, a human, flourish in this habitat that we've created. 
Um, in the book, I use the example of bees. I think in, in the first book, in Strong Downs, you know, it, it, I think we all understand that bees and beehives evolved together. They co-evolved, right? Whatever came before a bee and whatever came before a beehive, the, 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 the two are inseparable in a sense. They created themselves. And if you get into a beehive, you recognize that the form and the structure of the hive is, is tied in not only to the social aspect of the bees, how they interact with each other, what their hierarchies are, what their roles are in that bee society is, but it's also tied into like their longevity and their ability to reproduce and recreate and grow and sustain themselves. We all understand that if we went in tomorrow and said, you know what? we've got this great idea. Um, we're going to create bee cul-de-sacs off this hive. We're going to create some bee like interstates to connect these, you know, to get rid of this like difficult thing we have when the queen needs to get from here to here, or the drone needs to get, we understand and we can postulate and it's not a very difficult stretch for us to recognize that we would grow a bunch of neurotic bees, right? Like we would grow a bunch of dysfunctional neurotic bees. Why, when we look at human habitat, do we think that somehow we're different? And, and that's the part where, for me, it's not so much inspiration from nature, but humility in the face of all of these things that, th this wisdom that our ancestors, and I say that in, in the broadest possible sense of the word, our ancestors through trial and error figured out, here's how we build a human beehive. Here's how we build human habitat that makes these creatures, the humans, as successful, prosperous, content, self-actualized as possible. Why do we think in our like puny wisdom today that we can figure that out better than this thousands of years of trial and error did. And, and that, that's the difference between a biological mindset and, uh, you know, a mindset that derives itself in, in economics and physics and, and engineering and the more mechanistic pursuits that we fetishized in the 20th century. So it seems like the challenge is more not to try and mimic biology, but trying to unlearn all of the cumbersome sciences and design <laughs> concepts that we've used as guidance for how we make things currently. Would that be right? Yes. And, and I say unlearn. I, I, I'm not, you know, there's reasons why we have adages like you can't teach an old dog new tricks and, and this type of thing. I think there's a lot of inertia for us not to unlearn these things, right? What I, what I tell city officials is that, you know, if you're going to hire three engineers, hire one and hire two biologists. Mm. If you're going to hire... Um, you know, project manager, hire a, a, a competent social worker who has some type A organization skills. You know, we, 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 our cities are organic places. And when we hire uh, people who are uh, mechanical thinkers, we have a mismatch and a misalignment with what actually makes places work. Sure. And to narrow down the amount of perspectives that you bring into that planning certainly impoverishes the options that are going to come out of it too. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and I, I think it's not necessarily about replacing engineers because I think cities need engineers. They, they need some mechanical thinking. I mean, water flows by gravity. I mean, that is a, no sociologist can wish that away. And so there, there's a certain like mechanics to making it work, but the big picture decisions 
uh, when we leave them solely up to mechanical thinking people, we're, we're going to get like a just very myopic set of responses. Hmm. And what advice do you have for people who perhaps feel trapped in a built world that doesn't serve them or their values? What are the qualities and the skills perhaps that they can leverage to make a change, even if resources are hard to come by? We've been, we've been uh, having this discussion internally because we have all these local groups that have just spawned up by no impetus of our own places that, you know, we're strong uh, Sioux Falls, we're strong Dallas, we're strong, like where do these places come from? And they identify as local strong towns places. And so we've been trying to figure out how do we help these places be more uh, effective? And there have been a couple of things that have come out of that right away. Again, you're asking me something. I am an engineer. I am a planner. This is way outside of my area of expertise. But I'll tell you two observations that we have. The first one is that nobody can do this alone. And so if you are going to embark on a project of improving your place, improving the lives of people around you, uh, you know, addressing some complex issue in your place, um, you need to join with other people. You need to find other people who you can build a shared vision with. And that's going to require some humility as well as some leadership, right? And leadership and humility go hand in hand in this kind of situation. The second thing that we have to do uh, that we that we see as being really effective is you have to um, uh, understand the difference between your circle of concern and your circle of care. And this is something that I've seen spoken of in different ways, but uh, I can summarize it by be, saying we can be very concerned about Trump and Biden. We can be very concerned about the latest thing on Fox News or MSNBC. We can be concerned about these things. But if we spend the bulk of our time caring about them, if that's where we actually put our energy and our hope in, we will be hopelessly ineffective. We will not get anything done. Working to actually accomplish something requires you to put 95% of your energy into things that you can actually have an impact on. And uh, that's not to invalidate people's legitimate concerns, but we all know that person. and, And I, you know, have dear members of my family where when you sit down to have a conversation with them, the first half an hour is just them detoxing from whatever cable news network they watch. They got to get everything out. Have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? And they got to get through that. And then you can actually get to having a conversation with them. We have to not be that person, right? We have to be able to, I'm concerned about this, but I care about this. And so the bulk of my mental energy, the bulk of my physical energy, the bulk of my time is going to go to the things I care about, uh, not the, the distraction that uh, people want me to be concerned with. Very well said. And yeah, I mean, I, there's so many other places that I would love to go with this. This could evolve into a whole nother conversation, but perhaps we can leave it for another time. Charles, can you tell our audience where they can find more of your resources and how they can get in touch with you? Thank you. And we should do, we should do this more. You know, I was a little bit apprehensive because uh, I knew you wanted to take this in places that I am not an expert in. And I, I feel like this has been a, a good, a good conversation. So kudos to you uh, for doing a great interview. Um, Strong Towns, we publish two, three articles a day. So strongtowns.org is where you can go. 
All of our content is, is Creative Commons. There's no feed, access it, take it, use it. Uh, we have three different podcast streams. We're on every social media platform, just at Strong Towns or wherever you're at and you'll find us. Um, we are doing everything we can to try to share this core message of financial resiliency and how we build great places with as many people as we can. So I just wanna thank you for the opportunity to be able to come and, and share ideas with people. This is, this is what we do. And I, I, I am just, again, humbled by what people take and do with it. It's really incredible. Well, it's been a real pleasure and I really look forward to hopefully doing another session soon. Let's do it. That would be great. Thanks again to Charles Marone. I'll be posting all the links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons for free. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Now, in the next episode in this series on building strong communities, I'll be speaking with Dr. James Gruber, the author of the book Building Community, which is an extensive look at projects from all around the world that exemplify his 12 principles of community building and how you can leverage those learnings to find success in your own endeavors. So be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you stream your podcast from. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.